Hey, this is Pastor Allen. I'm the lead pastor here at First Baptist Church of Naples, and we are so happy that you have chosen to join us as we go through God's Word together. God's doing some amazing things here, and we pray that God's Word will transform you from the inside out. Our mission here is to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ of all peoples. And our hope is, is that you are being a disciple that makes disciples. Now, if you don't have a church home, we would love for you to join us, either in person or continuing online as we go into God's Word together every week. But if you are a member of another church, we don't want this to be in any way, shape, form, or fashion a substitute for you being connected to your local body. So our prayer is, is that God uses His Word to change you and to change others. So we pray that God will use you and this message for His glory. Have a great day. Well, welcome to First Naples. We're so happy to have you here. And if this is your first time worshiping with us, we are honored that you would be with us on Father's Day. And so uh, if you uh, have an opportunity in the pew back in front of you is this little card. You can either use the QR code on your phone or you can turn it around and fill out whatever information you want to share with us. And that will be a tremendous blessing to us today. You can turn it in one of our connection boxes or you can go out into the commons uh, to your left as you leave here and go to our Next Steps area. And they have a wonderful gift for you and would love to bless you and help you. Uh, take your next step, whatever that next step is. And as I said earlier, it is Father's Day. And so uh, for all the men in this room, all the dads, we have a special gift out in the courtyard, which is right behind this uh, auditorium. We have RC Cola and Moon Pies for you. And uh, we want to make sure, amen. So make sure you get an RC Cola and a Moon Pie, and there's an old truck out there. You can take a picture there, and that'll be a tremendous blessing. Well, take your copy of God's Word and turn to Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 5. We're going to begin in a moment in verse number 12, Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse number 12. We are in the middle of summer. Somebody left the oven on down here in South Florida, and uh, I just want to tell you right now, it is warmer here than it is in Central Florida in my mind, and it's way more humid. And so we are praying that the Holy Spirit would just continue to just bring us showers of blessings this afternoon to cool us off. Deuteronomy chapter five, before we get going too quick, we need to get again to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for this day. Thank you for the, the music, the time of worship that we had. And Father, we know, we know that you are faithful because you've proven yourself faithful over and over and over again, that there's honey in the rock, that, there, that you are enough. And God, we praise you. You are omnipotent. You are all powerful. And we love you, and we pray that all glory and honor and praise be to your name. So, Lord, thank you for this day, and Lord, help us to just find the freedom of rest that you've given us in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 12, let's stand as we read God's Word. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 12. If you don't have a Bible, we have some on the screen. You can follow the verses along. The Holy Spirit says today through Moses, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath 
day. You may be seated. All right. Could you imagine being born into slavery all of your life and not know that for a few years you were actually free? Well, today is June the 19th. It is Juneteenth Day. It is a national holiday. And so tomorrow when the bank and the post office is closed, it is because it's a national holiday. And this holiday goes back to 1865 when on June the 19th, Union soldiers made their way to Galveston, Texas, and they were led by Major General Gordon Granger. And they came to tell the people of Texas that the war of the States, the war between the states, the Civil War had ended, and that the slaves were now set free. Now, the interesting thing is that this happened on June the 19th, 1865. On January the 1st, 1863, Abraham Lincoln, the president, made the Emancipation Proclamation. And so on, uh, on June the 19th, 1865, General Granger goes into the town of Galveston, Texas, and he reads order number three, which says this, the people of Texas are informed that in accordance with the proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. This involves an absolute equality of rights and rights of property between former masters and slave, and the connection heretofore existing between them becomes between employer and free laborer. And so they were told they were free. They were free, but they didn't know they were free. And you know what many of these former slaves did uh, when they were told that they were free? Well, they celebrated. They rejoiced. Some of them left. Some of them went back to, uh, to, to other family or relatives that they knew. Some of them left their masters forever and ever. But sadly, many of them stayed and lived in their master's houses and became sharecroppers and were treated very, very harshly for a long time, even though they were completely free. And the reason I tell you that is because sadly, I think that for us as believers, uh, we have heard that we're free, but we're not living like we're free. Instead of living in our freedom, we are going back under the bondage of slavery to sin, the slavery uh, of, uh, of, of our culture, rather than living in the freedom that God has given us. And so today, as we look here uh, about the Sabbath and rest, we, we want to see the freedom that we have of the rest that we can find in Jesus. And so we see this here in Deuteronomy. Here in Deuteronomy, Israel is on the very edge of the promised land. They are on the edge of the Jordan River, a stone's throw away from the land that God had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It had been 40 years since God gave his 10 words to his people at Mount Sinai. And in those 40 years, a few things went wrong. And because God's people did not trust God and obey God, they wandered in the wilderness like a everlasting NASCAR race for 40 years. And as a result, everyone over the age of 20 that left with Moses from Egypt is dead. And now there is a new generation and the next generation is all that is left. 
And so the book of Deuteronomy is in the Greek, Deuteronomos, the second law. It's the second giving of the law. So Moses here, before he's about to go be with God, is going to give a refresher course for the people of God. Uh, people that were probably too young when Moses first gave the law or weren't even born yet when he gave the Ten Commandments there on Mount Sinai. And so what Moses does here in Deuteronomy is he reminds God's people of what God did to bring them to where they were and what God was calling them to be as his people in this land of promise. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 5, as Moses goes through and rehearses these 10 words of God, here in the second giving of the law, Moses in this Sabbath command calls us and them to resist our old identity and to rest in our new identity. So when you leave the service this morning, I want you to leave here knowing two things. We need to resist our old identity and we need to rest in our new identity. So let's just walk through that. Number one, resisting your old identity. Again, Genesis or, or Deuteronomy 5, Moses goes through the Ten Commandments. The first, you shall not have any other gods before Yahweh. Uh, there should be no other God. Second, you should not make unto yourself any carven or graven image. There should be no idols. There shouldn't be anything that you love more, serve more, worship more than Yahweh, than God. And then three, you shall not take the Lord your God's name in vain. You shall not render it empty or defame the name of God. And then number four here, Moses in giving this the second time changes a couple things. Instead of using the word remember, which he does in Exodus chapter 20, he uses a different word. He uses the word observe. The Hebrew word is shamar, and that word shamar means to keep, to watch, to celebrate, and to obey. And so they were to observe the Sabbath. Uh, think of observing the speed limit. I heard uh, somebody in our church this week got pulled over doing an 80 and a 45. That's not healthy. Is, and it will not make you wealthy, and it's definitely not wise, okay? So they did not observe the speed limit. Observing the speed limit doesn't just mean that you acknowledge that there's a speed limit. doesn't just mean that you see that there's a speed limit sign. It means that you obey it and that you follow it. And so here, Israel was to not just acknowledge that there was a Sabbath day, but they were to observe it. Uh, they were to keep it holy, not make it holy. God in creation made it holy. They were to keep it holy. And so they were to observe the Sabbath as a weekly holiday. It was to be like Christmas. It was to be like Easter. It was something that they geared up for, something they looked forward to, something that they planned out in advance, something that was special uh, in their lives and in their family. It was to be a once a week celebration of all uh, that is good, uh, in God's world and all of the goodness of God. And so uh, it was to be a weekly reminder. And that's why every Sunday before I preach, I always say, God is good. And you say all the time. And I say, God is good. And you say all the, and all the time. And you say, God is good. And the reason why is that every time we open God's word, I want to reorient your heart and your mind in the fact that God is good. Amen. And so that's what God was saying in this commandment. Observe the Sabbath. Remind yourself of the goodness of God once a week. And so he says in verse 14 that this commandment was for God's people. It was 
was for their children, it was for their employees or their slaves, and it was also for the animals. One scholar said that this was a biblical, this is a type of biblical justice for all people made in the image of God, even the sojourner, even the immigrants, uh, even those uh, who were there uh, as sojourners, as strangers, those who were afraid of, uh, of where they were going to put their head at night. God wanted even those people to rest. God wanted that seventh day, that Sabbath to be Shabbat, to be a day of rest for everyone, to give everyone a day off, even the animals. And the reason why is because we're not machines. And so he says in verse 15, you shall remember that you're no longer slaves. This is the second change that Moses makes in the difference between Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy chapter five. In Exodus 20, Moses ground uh, the, uh, the Sabbath ca- uh, commandment uh, in creation. But here, uh, Moses, uh, God through Moses, uh, grounds this uh, command in the deliverance that the people of God had from Pharaoh and the evil empire of Egypt. And so why is that? Well, in Exodus 20, as God's people stood at the foot of Mount Sinai and Moses gave them the 10, uh, everyone knew that they had been delivered from bondage. Uh, and the reason why everybody knew they'd been delivered from bondage is because they still smelled like they had been delivered from bondage. And so when God gives the 10 commandments and he gives the fourth commandment, he is telling newly released slaves how they are to live in freedom uh, as they wander about. And so they live in freedom based on the creation mandate. But here, this Deuteronomy generation is a different generation. It is the first generation to grow up in absolute freedom. See, their parents, their grandparents, their great-grandparents, they lived in bondage, and their lives were devoured by the evil empire, one brick, one pyramid, and one building at a time. And so these people that are now getting the law in Deuteronomy have a very faint memory, if any memory of all, of what it was to be a slave. And so they don't understand the story of their family's oppression. Uh, but if you read Exodus chapter 5, j- just think about the, uh, the oppression of God's people. For 440 years, they had cruel taskmasters, cruel pharaohs who were constantly wanting more and more from them. And so in Exodus chapter 5, just a snippet, this is what Pharaoh said to those people living in, in bondage. Here's what he said. He says, get back to your burdens. You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks. You shall by no means reduce the number of bricks. They're lazy. Let, the, let, the, let heavier work be laid on the men. Complete your work, your daily task. Each day must be the same. Make bricks, make bricks, make bricks. You are lazy. You are idle. You are idle. That was what they were hearing every day. And so no matter how hard God's people worked, It was never, ever enough. There was always a quota to make. And so that was what the Exodus generation heard. But now the Deuteronomy generation, 40 years later, as they're standing at the very precipice of the promised land, God says, I want you to remember the Sabbath and observe it. Why? Because it's very easy 40 years later to forget where you came from. It's very easy for God's people to forget that they and their forefathers were once slaves. And it was very easy for them to forget what God had done for them to get them where they were. 
How many of you have seen God do some amazing things in your life personally? Say amen. amen. And how many of you, if you let a week go by, a month go by, a year go by, have some other issue in your life and you are running around like a chicken with your head cut off because in that moment you have forgotten what God has done for you in the past. And here's what God is saying. What I've done for you in the past is proof of what I'm gonna do for you in the present and in the future. And so what God is teaching his people here is y'all can't forget. That's what it says in, in the Kentucky version there. You gotta remember. And so all throughout the book of Deuteronomy, you'll find this phrase, remember, remember. 24 times God says, remember. And 24 times he says, don't forget. Why? Because humans are prone to amnesia. See, God knew that this fourth commandment of all of them would be the one that it would be a struggle for God's people to remember. God knew that it would not take long for his people to forget him after years of prosperity and years of security. It wouldn't be hard for them to remember, well, you shouldn't kill somebody. It wouldn't be hard for them to remember you shouldn't steal. It wouldn't be hard for them to remember you shouldn't make an image and bow down and worship it as God, but it would be very hard for them to take one day off each week to remember what God had done for them. And so this particular command points God's people to this one fact. Don't go back to Egypt. You say, what, what do you mean by that? Follow me. Egypt was a metaphor is a metaphor for sin and slavery. And so even though the people of God were free from the oppression of Pharaoh and the oppression of Egypt, there was a fear that they could either become A, the oppressor, or B, go back under the oppression of a different kind of Pharaoh. There's always that fear of going back. Because when you're raised to be a slave and you're set free, all you know is slavery. And so God here says, you need a weekly reminder. You need a weekly reminder that you are not who you used to be. You are now a people that are completely free. See, there is a tendency for those who are free to put themselves back into bondage. As as God's people in Egypt, as slaves in Egypt, the people worked all day, every day until they died. And you and I have the same tendency to put ourselves under the same kind of bondage yet to a different master because you and I are still struggling to hold, we are still holding on to our old identity as a slave. And so even though we may not have been in physical bondage, like God's people were in Egypt, we are under spiritual, emotional bondage in our day. There is a new Egypt, and the new Egypt and the new Pharaoh is the incessant cry for more. And it's finding our identity in what we do or what we have done. John Mark Comer in his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, said, that, said this, he says, Egypt is alive and well. We live in a culture of more, a culture with an unquenchable lust for everything, lust for food, for more food, for more drink, for more clothes, for more devices, more apps, more things, more square footage, more experiences, and more stamps on a passport, more. And so the new Egypt 
requires that we become both the oppressor and the oppressed. To get more, you have to do more. That's the American dream, right? You wanna have more. And so to get more, you gotta do more because more is more. And so in our lives, we use people to get more. And we get used by people so they can get more. And in our Western culture, we voluntarily put ourselves under the slavery and bondage of meeting unrealistic expectations from our society. Our society says you have to look this way, you have to think this way, you have to dress this way, you have to talk this way, you've got to know this stuff, you've got to be this stuff. And we've been caught up under the taskmasters of more. And this even happens in our everyday work life. Derek Thomas, in an article he wrote for The Atlantic, wrote the article saying, workism is making Americans miserable. He writes, the economists of the early early 20th century failed to anticipate that for the college-educated elite, work would morph into a kind of religion, promising identity, transcendence, and community. Call it workism. The belief that work is not only necessary to economic production, but also the centerpiece of one's identity and life's purpose. Work and achievement have become the the addiction of our time. It has become an acceptable addiction. I mean, how many of you walk up to people and say, I'm an alcoholic and I love to drink all the time? How many of you say, I'm addicted to porn and I watch it every day? I'm addicted to drugs and I just, I get high every day. Probably wouldn't do that, right? But yet it's acceptable in America to say, I'm a workaholic and I work all the time. As Christopher Nolan said in his rendition of Batman, the movie, he says, it's not who you are underneath It's what you do that defines you. I mean, think about when you first meet people. You ask them their name, they tell you their name, and then what's normally the second question that you always ask somebody? What do you, what do you do? What do you do for a living? So what happens in our American culture is that our job titles and our work responsibilities are really what ultimately give us meaning in life. And so we have allowed what we do for a living We've allowed how much money we make. Uh, We allow uh, our athletic ability or even our kids' athletic ability because many parents live vicariously through their kids. We allow our uh, uh, social media prowess to be what gives us our identity. And so we don't feel like we can ever say no to anybody. We don't feel like we can ever take a break. We don't feel like we can ever stop doing things because Our taskmasters of more are constantly demanding more and more of us. And so we can't take a break. We, we can't afford to take a break because our cult, the culture around us says, this is what you need to be happy. This is what you have to do to be happy. This is what you need to get to be happy. And the problem is, is that you can never, ever do enough. And some of you in this room, you have problems saying no. And I'm telling you, the reason I'm saying this so passionately is because I have problems saying no. But here's what you gotta understand, especially the dads in the room, 
Every yes you give is a thousand no's to something else. And every yes you give to work and every yes you give to this, that, and the other might be a thousand no's to your family at home. And, and it's something I struggle with. It's something that I deal with. But what happens is we are caught up into the trap of our, the culture, the, the new Egypt around us. And this happens in every area of our life, even in the church. Even in the church, we can get caught up in the trap of more is more. And sometimes you'll even hear pastors get up and, and they'll say, well, you know, Satan never takes a day off. And so we should never take a day off. Well, the thing that I want to ask them is this, how's that working out for him? And how's it working out for Satan that he never takes a day off? You know, and I'll just tell you as a Christian, none of us should ever want to be like Satan. As a matter of fact, it's been pointed out that the only time the Bible calls somebody busy, a, a spiritual entity is busy, is Satan. In the book of Job, he was busy roaming the earth, roaming the earth to and fro. Jesus is never busy. Jesus has got a lot of people around him, but Jesus is never busy and he's never in a hurry. And so as believers, as a church, we can get caught up into the cultural pressure that we have to be a 24-7 church with every program, every option of service times, every style of worship to be everything to everybody. But here's the thing. You cannot be all things to all people and stay on mission. You just can't. Like how many of you try to make everybody happy and you end up making nobody happy and you're miserable, right? You can't do it. And so what God here is saying in this command, this principle is a call to resist the cultural pull of more. One scholar said that the Sabbath was an act of resistance against Pharaoh and the evil empire. That it's an insurgency and an insurrection against the materialism, consumerism, and hedonism of our day. It is saying no to the man. John Mark Comer says in his book that the Sabbath tells a subversive story to the empire, be it Egypt, Babylon, Nazi Germany, or our own. A story that says no matter what other people do to us, we are image bearers of God. We are not slaves or subhuman. We are who we are loved by, and we were created for a rhythm of work and rest. What I'm telling you is this, it's okay to take a break. God wants you to have moments where you are focusing and reorienting your life in him, where you are resisting, where you are resting and restoring, where you are delighting and you are worshiping, you are not working. God wants that, it's healthy for your life. But what we have to do is we have to resist the old identity and the old narrative that more is more and I've got to do more so I can have more so that I can be more. God says, resist that old identity. Because guess what it leads to? Death. It leads to death. Resist the old identity. Second point, rest in your new identity. In verse 15, he says, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. The Sabbath was to be a weekly reminder of Israel's true identity. Weekly reminder. Work six, off one. It reminded not only them of who they were, but it also reminded the watching world of who they were. It, rem it reminded the Egyptians and the Canaanites and the Edomites and the Jebusites and the termites around them that they were not the same as everyone else. It was the Sabbath command that separated God's people from all the other nations around them. All the other nations around them 
had a culture that required labor without rest and ceaseless offerings to secure a favor with their God. But here we see the God of Israel, Yahweh, gives a command to rest. And that command to rest is what distinguishes Yahweh from all the other pagan deities of all the other surrounding nations in that day. One scholar said that the Sabbath legislation was unique among world's cultures at the time. It limited work, profit-taking, exploitation, and economic production in general. Every seventh day, no work could be done in the fields, and every seventh year, the field was to remain follow uh, and not be cultivated at all. This surely meant that in the short run, Israel was less economically productive and prosperous than its neighbors, but it was a land of free people. In the long run, of course, a deeply rested people are far more productive. Ultimately, the Sabbath was an act of rest. So when Truett Cathy, who's a devout believer, started Chick-fil-A, he took the Lord's Day off. And so they worked six days and off one. The, 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 the economic gurus uh, of business of, of that day would say, well, that's foolish. Because you, if you work seven days a week, you sell more chicken. And you have seven days to sell chicken, not six days to sell chicken. And so you, you, you're a fool taking one day off. And so what happened is, is in the beginning, well, McDonald's did make more money than Chick-fil-A. And Burger King did make more money than Chick-fil-A. But guess where Chick-fil-A is now? Amen? And they're closed today so that you'll want to go there tomorrow. <laughs> For Israel, when they took a day off, all the other nations around them worked seven days a week. All the other nations around them produced seven days a week. When Israel took one day out of that seven days off, they in the very beginning were not bringing in as much as all the nations around them. But in time, guess what happened? Guess what happened? So for God's people then and for God's people now, the Sabbath was a declaration of freedom. Why? Stay with me. It's because only free people are free to take a break. See, slaves can't rest. Slaves have to work. Slaves don't get a day off. Slaves don't take a Sabbath. And so when you and I take a Sabbath, when we take a break, we are reminding ourselves of this truth that we're no longer slaves. And because we're no longer slaves, we don't have to feel guilty when we take time off to Sabbath and we don't have to go along with the tropes of culture that says more is more. When we say, you know what? I've got enough because Jesus is enough and because Jesus is enough, I am enough. That's okay, because I'm free. See, people who are defined by what they do don't have the luxury of taking time off. You can't afford to do it. Because if accomplishment and achievement are the taskmasters of your life, you'll never be finished because they will never be satisfied. And so if your God is achievement and your God is production and accomplishment, then you will have to do everything you can to protect your status because you've got to be a producer. You've got to be an achiever. You've got to constantly be doing more and more and more to keep your space in the world. And what Tim Keller says about that is this is he says, anyone who overworks is really a slave. Nobody in this room needs to work 80 hours a week. Nobody. Studies said, I've shared this before, studies will say that people that work 80 hours a week are no more productive than people that work 40 hours a week. 
But anyone who overworks is really a slave, and anyone who cannot rest from work is a slave, a slave to a need for success, a slave to a need for materialistic materialism, a slave to exploitative employers, a slave to parental expectations or to all of the above. Keller says, these slave masters will abuse you if you're not disciplined in the practice of Sabbath rest. Now, let me just say, what I'm preaching right now is countercultural. Matter of fact, I'm expecting people to get upset about what we preach this summer because it goes against the grain of our culture. It goes against the grain. And here's what I found. In so many areas of our lives, in so many areas of our lives, it is far easier to acclimate and assimilate to the host culture around us. It is far easier to go with the flow than to stand against the current of culture. Just think of what happened this month in Tampa Bay. The Tampa Bay Rays uh, had some players uh, that have come under attack because they refused to participate in the Pride Night uh, at the Tampa, at, at Tampa, for Tampa Bay. And so a Pride Night was a night in which the players at Tropicana Field uh, on their uniforms put a, 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 a patch on their uniform that supported LGBTQ lifestyle. And, and, and so uh, there was a handful of, of players that refused to do it. And one of those players is a player named Jason Adam, and he was interviewed, and I'm going to share his interview, and, it, and, and in it you hear where his heart is. He says a lot of it comes down to faith, to like a faith-based decision. So it's a hard decision, but ultimately we all said what we want is them, that is those in the LGBTQ lifestyle, to know that they are all welcomed and loved here. But when we put it on our bodies, that patch on our bodies, I think a lot of guys decided that it was just a lifestyle, not to look down on anybody or think differently. It's just that maybe we don't want to encourage it if we believe in Jesus, who in, who's encouraged us to live a lifestyle that would abstain from that behavior, just like Jesus encourages me as a heterosexual male to abstain from sex outside of the confines of marriage. It's no different. He wasn't ugly. He wasn't mean. He didn't call people names. He had compassion, but he stood on his conviction. And he did so at great risk of his career and his livelihood. As a matter of fact, people have called them homophobes. People have called them bigots. But yet they made their stand. And those players took their stand because they believed in Jesus, because they didn't find their identity and what they did. They found their identity in Jesus Christ. And so when you and I don't go with the flow of culture, the only way that we're not going to go with the flow of culture is we have to be rooted and grounded in Jesus. And we must rest in what he says we are, and we must rest in what he thinks about us. We should not rest in what we do for him. We must rest in what he has done for us. And that's what Israel was to do, and that's what we're to do. We have to resist the old identity. We have to rest in the new identity. A.J. Sabota writes in his book, Subversive Sabbath, which I used this quote last week, but I think it's so important I want to use it again. He says that Sabbath is a scheduled weekly reminder that we are not what we do. Rather, we are who we are loved by. Sabbath and the gospel scream the same thing. We do not work to get to a place where we finally get to breathe and rest. That's slavery. Rather, we rest and breathe and enjoy God that we might enter into rest. 
He says in verse 15, the Lord your God brought you out from there. God brought Israel out of bondage, not to bondage. He brought them out of bondage so that they could rest in the land of promise. And in that land of promise, they were to remember God and they were to remind themselves regularly of what God had done for them. Every Sabbath day was to be a reenactment of the emancipation that they experienced from slavery. Every day they were to remind themselves and every week they were to remind themselves of what God has done for them and what God has prepared for them. And just as the Sabbath reminded them all that God had done for them and all that God had prepared for them, so is it our Sabbath, so is it every Lord's Day that we remind ourselves of what God has done for us and what God has prepared for us. And so they were to obey it. And as you read Deuteronomy and as you read the rest of the Old Testament, God called them to trust him. They, God called them to obey him. And if they trusted him and obeyed him, God would give them complete rest. Give them rest from all the enemies around them. But the problem is, Israel failed to do what God told them to do. When all the other nations around them were working seven days, well, Israel said, well, we better do it too. And instead of keeping the Sabbath, they profaned the Sabbath. Instead of trusting God, they distrusted God. Instead of every seventh year, they were to leave the ground to be completely fallow. They worked the field and they continued being like everybody else around them. And they became just as evil, if not more evil, than the nations that surrounded them. And the result is, is that God sent them away to exile, kicked them out of the land. Just as he kicked Adam and Eve out of Eden, so he kicked Israel out of Israel. <laughs> because they didn't do what? They didn't keep the Sabbath. They fell prey to their old identity, and because of that, they suffered for it. And anytime you and I put ourselves back under the bondage of our culture, rather than living in the freedom of Christ, we'll suffer for it. And I think that's where the church is in America today. That rather than standing up for biblical truth, we've decided it's easier to go with the flow. Instead of standing and saying, you know what? That Jesus is not a Republican or a Democrat. Jesus is King of Kings. We have... We have married the political culture and climate of our day, and that's why the church is divided. Instead of saying we're going to stand on biblical truths and principles when it comes to life, when it comes to marriage, when it comes to lifestyle, we have gone with the flow. And that's why the church in America is dying. Because we put ourselves back under the bondage. And instead of trusting God, and obeying him, we've trusted ourselves and disobeyed God. And for some of you, the reason why your life might be falling apart is because you're not resting in what Jesus has done for you. Gavin Ortland said that he said that if you struggle to take Sabbath rest, it may be a gospel issue. Finding your identity in your work or being a people pleaser or using busyness to distract you from unhappiness. So much overwork is driven by self-justification efforts. That is, 
we need to accomplish more and more because we're failing to apply to our hearts what Christ has already accomplished for us. Stop right there. The default mode, the reason why many of us overwork is we're trying to prove to God and others that we are worthy of God's love. And so Ortland says the most important thing to do during Sabbath rest is refresh your heart with fellowship with God and to enjoy your status as his beloved child because of what Jesus has done. You are not a child of God because of what you do for Jesus. You are a child of God because of what Jesus has done for you. Resist your old identity. You are no longer a slave to fear. Rest in your new identity. You are a child of God. No longer a slave. You are a child of God. Let me end with this. Today's Father's Day. I thank God for godly dads. I thank God for my daddy. So thankful for him. I'm thankful I get to be a dad. I love my kids. You know, one thing I'm really thankful for about our church, I love our church. Wow, I love you guys. But one of the things I'm really thankful for is is our love for those who are involved in fostering and adopting. I'm so grateful for our ministry. And and our hope is, as we continue our Love Naples efforts, uh, is that we continue to have a greater heart for fostering and adopting. And and we have a family that's gonna be leading our Love Naples ministry, that they are a picture of of what fostering and adopting looks like in the cantors. Love Edison, amen. Love Caitlin, love love that family. But there's no greater picture of love and the Father's love than adoption. And and April and I, we we are licensed in the state to be foster parents. We were about to start that journey and then we got a call to come to Naples and so it kind of changed some things up but we hope in the near future to get involved in that. But I've talked to a lot of foster parents. I've talked to a lot of adoptive parents and I've heard stories, I've heard sad stories. So I wanna just kind of take some of those stories. I wanna just give you an illustration. I want you to imagine a little boy that is taken uh, and put into a foster house, into the foster care system and the home that he is put into is horrible. And, and uh, he's a little boy and, and for the first five years of his life, he lives with foster parents that never tell him that they love him. They always make fun of him. They're mean to him. They, they hit him. They, they, they pick on him. And the little boy is living in this, this situation. Sadly, this is more of a reality than what we like. And this little boy doesn't have a bed to sleep on. He has to sleep on the floor. He never gets any new toys. He barely gets any food. Matter of fact, he'll go to school, he'll go to kindergarten, and at lunch he'll borrow food from his friends, put it in his pocket so that when he gets home he has something to eat. One day DCF takes the child away. They find out that he's in a horrible home and they take him away and they bring him to a a family that wants to not only foster him, but they want to adopt him. And this is a family that loves him and speaks life to him and gives him a nice room with a nice bed and a room full of toys. And every meal is, is great food and all he could ever want. But I want you to imagine this new adoptive dad 
coming into the room of his new adopted son and instead of seeing his son sleeping in the bed, he walks in and sees the kid sleeping on the floor. Wakes the kid up and says, hey son, you, you don't have to sleep on the floor. You've got a bed here. That, that's your old family. This is your new family. You are loved here. You are cherished here. We have a bed for you to rest in. And I want you to imagine the, the next day after the kid comes back from school, the dad's looking for his new son, looking for his son and wants to play with him, wants to hang out with him. And he calls the son's name and the kid runs immediately in the, into the closet, scared because in his old house, anytime that that foster dad looked for him, it was always for a beating. It was always for hurt. It was always for pain. And the dad goes and finds this little boy in the closet, says, son, you, you don't have to hide in the closet when I'm looking for you. I love you. I'll never hurt you. You are mine. I cherish you. Imagine that night for dinner, the little boy sitting there at the table, so much food, and he starts putting the food in his pockets. And the dad looks at the son and says, son, you, you don't have to put food in your pockets. You don't need to do that anymore. Every meal you'll, you'll get, you'll, you'll never go hungry. You are loved here. This is your new family. You don't have to do what you used to do anymore because you're in a new family and we love you. Sadly, that story happens more often than we want. But the reason I tell you that story is because I think for a lot of us in this room, that's a story for many of you. That the sin of your past and the sin today has caused you to live with a sense of fear under the threat. But in Christ, you're part of a new family. You've got a new identity. And you're not under the bondage and condemnation of your past. And you no longer have to live in fear that if you don't work hard enough, you will never be enough. You can rest. Jesus is saying you can rest in your new identity. You, you don't have to serve me in fear that if you don't, you'll go to hell. You, you don't have to live like this. You can sleep every night in the assurance that goodness and mercy is going to follow you all the days of your life. You can trust your father because your father gave his only son so that with him, he will graciously and freely give you all things. Are you resting in what you do for God? Or are you resting in what God has done for you? Are you reliving your past or are you living in your future? You're no longer a slave to fear. You're a child of God. Do you rest each moment in the crucified? Are you washed in the blood of the lamb? If you are, then rest. And if you've never trusted Jesus as your savior today, he will change you. He will adopt you. He will bring you into his family and he'll never cast you away. What a mighty God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Lord, I pray that this message will do a work that only you can do. God, that you would help us to resist the old identity of more and rest in the new identity that Jesus is enough. And God, for those in this room that need you as Savior, would you call them to yourself and save him? In Jesus' name. Amen.
Let's stand and let's sing, no longer slaves. Thank you for joining us as we go through God's Word together. I pray again that God will transform you from the inside out. So as we say here at first, you have come to church. Go out and be the church. Have a great week of worship. We can't wait to see you soon.